Hello and welcome to Teaming the Shrew. My name is Adam Gatula and I'm a third year emergency medicine resident at the University of Cincinnati. Today I am joined by Dr. Liz Powell, a previous EMS fellowship trained emergency medicine attending who is currently a critical care fellow and Paige Barger, an acute care nurse practitioner in the cardiovascular ICU at the University of Cincinnati. This is not the first time we've been privileged to have them join us on Taming the Shrew. Previously, Dr. Powell and Paige have joined us to discuss cardiogenic shock, which was followed by an additional podcast discussing the left ventricular assist device. If you have not had the chance to listen to these podcasts or read the articles associated with them, I would highly recommend doing so. Today, Dr. Powell and Page have returned to shift gears from mechanical support for cardiogenic failure to mechanical support for pulmonary failure. This is ultimately in the form of VV ECMO. However, before we dig into the details of VV ECMO, let's get everyone on the same page regarding the basics. There are a lot of terms and abbreviations that are thrown around regarding VV ECMO. You hear VV ECMO, VA ECMO, ECLS, ECPR. So before we get too far, can you explain in basic terms what VV ECMO is and how it differs from VA ECMO and the rest? Yeah, so what VV ECMO is, is in the name. So it's veno-venous extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. So you essentially have cannulas in both veins that remove blood from the body, and provide oxygenation to that blood, return it to the body. And we'll go into a little bit more about why you would put patients on VV ECMO, but that's essentially what it is. VA ECMO uh, will be a different topic that we'll cover, and we'll also do a sidebar plug for Paige's upcoming Impella series as well. Thank you, Dr. Powell. Now that we're all on the same page regarding VV ECMO in relation to VV and VA ECMO, could we go over the basics of what an ECMO circuit is and how it actually accomplishes oxygenation of the deoxygenated blood? Yeah, so Adam, I'm just going to ask the questions from now on since I just took you in to see a circuit and we're going to do some live pimping here. No, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. All right, so instead of pimping Adam on the various uh, elements of the circuit, we're just going to run through the different elements. So if you pull up in your, if you have access to it, you're not driving, we don't recommend doing this if you're driving, but if you pull up the uh, accompanying documents to this podcast, you can, uh, you can actually see a stick figure representation of what VV ECMO would actually look like. So if you start, so words matter, right? So if you start at the drainage cannula, which in this particular institution and in a lot of institutions will traditionally be located in the right femoral vein. So you start at the drainage cannula. So the drainage cannula is a negative pressure system that's going to remove deoxygenated blood from the body. So when you go to pick these patients up at another facility, as Adam and I may be doing in the next few minutes, what you want to be looking at is what is the color of the blood that is leaving that drainage cannula. So deoxygenated blood should be darker. So a mo external motor system basically creates negative pressure that draws the blood out of that drainage cannula, takes it through that motor rotor system, very similar to when we discussed the mechanics of an LVAD. And then what is 
in addition to kind of that principle of the LVAD where you have the motor rotor system, that blood is now going to go through an oxygenator. And we're going to actually put some pictures up as well. We'll have some pictures for you guys so that you can actually trace it through the VV system. So on the pre-oxygenated side, that blood diffuses across a membrane. That's where carbon dioxide and oxygen are exchanged through that diffusion gradient. And then that blood on the post-oxygenator side is now that oxygenated red, kind of bright red blood that you would expect to see. And then that is returned to the right IJ cannula. So when you're, when you're looking at this, you should always do a circuit check when you roll up on these patients. You should trace your lines and you should understand your lines. You should look at color differences. Um, and Paige, you know, you, Paige has been doing this for a minute. Paige, what are some other things when you're like running a circuit that, that you're looking at? So I think when you're first walking in on an ECMO patient that you've not encountered previously, just like Dr. Powell said, where are your cannulas? Which cannulas are draining versus which cannulas are returning? And it's not uncommon when you go to other facilities, potentially for them to refer to, while this is venovenous and this is all in the venous system, potentially referring to them as the venous cannula and the arterial cannula. And while that cannula is not actually in an artery, it is the equivalent of arterial blood, meaning it's oxygenated. And that is one misnomer that you might hear people say. So just take that in stride when you're, when you're rolling up on these people. But also, um, what do your cannula sites look like? Where is the cannula? Uh, these cannulas often have coils in them. Where are those coils in relationship to where the cannula enters the skin? That way, if, you know, all of a sudden something changes, you know, it has your cannula moved. Um, and then what does your oxygenator look like? And, and we can talk a little bit about that a bit more. Um, and also we'll have those pictures to show you what oxygenators should look like and what uh, poor oxygenators look like, sad, sad oxygenators look like, and what that can mean for you in the middle of a transport. So now that we're all on board with what VV ECMO is and the basic components of a VV ECMO circuit, what patients does this apply to and who do I in the emergency department need to be considering this on early on in the process? Yeah, so that's a really great question. So I'll start off and then I'm just going to rely on Paige's expertise. Uh, moving forward. So we get a fair number of phone calls about putting patients on ECMO, right? But the question that we always have is, does this patient need VV ECMO or does this patient need VA ECMO? So what that basically comes down to is, does the patient need pulmonary support? So are the lungs the primary problem? Uh, improving oxygenation and improving respiratory acidosis, is that going to improve this patient's outcome? Or is the patient's problem primarily circulatory? If the patient's problem is primarily circulatory, bypassing the lungs doesn't get you anything. So real life example, if you get called for VV ECMO in an outside facility for pulmonary edema intra-op that is secondary to cardiogenic shock, VV ECMO is not going to fix your problem. In that particular patient, you would consider VA ECMO on them if they are otherwise a candidate. So this brings up the good point of what happens if a VV ECMO goes into cardiac arrest? Well, they're on ECMO, right? No, they're on VV ECMO. So in that particular case, you would still do chest compressions, unlike the patient on VA ECMO that is now receiving circulatory support. So what you're telling me is no lungs equal VV ECMO 
if there's a problem with the heart or the circulatory system, then I'm thinking VA ECMO. So if I'm focusing on VV ECMO, I'm focusing on primary pulmonary pathology. However, there's a spectrum of pulmonary pathology. So is there any hardline indications for VV ECMO? And are there any decision rules that help you decide who might be a good candidate? So I think before you kind of can get into the depths of the scoring, uh, it's important to know who is your candidate and when you're doing these scores and there's a difference in all these different, where these scores come from, different scores have different criteria for who is or isn't um, a candidate and what those hard lines in the sand are. So, so basically if you're trying to figure out if this person is a candidate for veno venous ECMO, you should think about is their risk of death without ECMO high because the risk of ECMO in and of itself is also tremendously high. So if they're gonna get better on their own, there's no sense in subjecting them to the risks associated with ECMO. Additionally, is the diagnosis that you have at hand readily reversible? Um, the only caveat to this is sometimes some institutions will put patients on ECMO for transplant. We'll talk a little bit about that later. But essentially, if you have an end-stage COPD patient and then you don't think that this patient is having an acute exacerbation they're going to get through, that's not necessarily somebody that you're going to put on venovenous ECMO. And then lastly, the absence of contraindications, which by score system is, is very dependent. Um, and so basically with VV ECMO, we should really only do this in people who have predicted hypoxia related to morbidity mortality. It outweighs the complications and mortality of ECMO. Um, and so when you're talking about contraindications to ECMO, um, everywhere is a little bit different. And as we've gotten better at ECMO across the country, some of those contraindications that were hard lines in the sand previously are much softer relative contraindications now. Um, so, you know, things like obviously a condition that's incompatible with life uh, or patients who have been mechanically ventilated for more than seven to 10, maybe 14 days, uh, because at that point in time, you're talking about lung injury that has already occurred. And the whole goal of putting patients on venovenous ECMO is to allow their lungs to rest and recover from the underlying cause. Um, additionally, uh, people who are potentially pregnant have malignancy with a estimated survival of less than five years people who have heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, all these people who are going to have real issues with the anticoagulation and with the long-term sequela of ECMO are who you're going to really look hard and, and fast at for whether or not they're a candidate. So once the decision has been made to put someone on ECMO and it's been clearly decided that the patient does not meet the agreed-upon contraindications at your local institution, how do you go about deciding what circuit to put the patient on and specifically the configuration of the ECMO circuit? This is an interesting question. And I think what you're going to find is it's going to kind of depend on the institution that you're going to and the training of the providers. So like Paige was talking about with the lung transplant patients, many of these patients at lung transplant centers will be walking the halls extubated with a dual lumen catheter, usually in their right IJ. So that is certainly one possibility that exists for cannulation. At our institution, our primary go-to is a right IJ, right femoral vein 
approach. But I've also picked up patients at other institutions that have had a fem-fem cannulation, and we have one in the unit right now that's a left IJ, left fem uh, approach. So just keeping in mind that even though the kind of typical standard, especially here, is going to be a right IJ, right fem, there are many different configurations. Now that we've gone over the different ECMO configurations, what parameters are there that we need to worry about in an ECMO circuit, and what do these parameters mean? Okay, sure. So you've just cannulated your patient. You've got a right, right IJ, right fem configuration. Now you're really excited. You're feeling like a boss, and you're like, I'm so awesome. But now you've actually got to put them on the circuit. And this is where things can get challenging. So you've got two cannulas in place, and you're basically going to connect the sterile circuit tubing that your perfusionist or nurse is going to hand you. So you're going to connect them to the cannulas, but everything's going to be clamped off because you don't want blood to start backflow, forward flowing, if you don't have enough adequate flow or if you have air introduced in the system. So as you're connecting, you always make sure that there's no air. You kind of squirt some saline in between the two cannulas as you connect them. And then while the circuit is still clamped, you have perfusion slowly go up on the RPMs, usually around 1500 or so. Then once you're up to 1500, you take the clamps off and now what you should be seeing is a color differential in your tubing as negative pressure pulls blood out of the drainage cannula and then blood is returned through the return cannula. And you can look at that and you should see bright red blood in the return and then a darker blood coming through uh, the drainage cannula. So really as you're going on and as flows are increased, that's one thing that we take a look at immediately to know that your cannulas are at the very least in adequate position to get good initial flows and good initial oxygenation. And remember, we're clearing oxygen, or providing oxygen, clearing carbon dioxide. We're not providing circulatory support. So the flow that you are going to set in VV ECMO is going to depend on your patient and how much flow they need for oxygen. So higher flows are going to provide more oxygenation. And oftentimes, this is just basically a calculation. So you can kind of think about what a patient's normal cardiac index would be. And even though you're not providing circulatory support, you're providing a portion of their cardiac index of oxygenated blood. So you may be looking at having a patient with, you know, an index greater than two, greater than 2.2 and adjusting your RPM such that you're flowing that amount. Now you want to make sure that your cannulas are of big enough size that you can get adequate flow and you want to make sure that the patient is volume resuscitated such that you're not getting kind of sucking down on your IVC or your drainage cannula with that negative pressure. But those are some good places to start. After you've set that RPM rate to get the flow that's desired, you're going to look at your negative and positive pressures of your drainage and return cannulas respectively. Make sure that those numbers in range, uh, then you're going to secure the cannulas and you're going to transport. So as Liz was talking about in regards to pulling off the CO2 and delivering oxygen, there are two other parameters to look at and be sure that you're aware of when you're transporting. So the first is the delivery of oxygen. And when we talk about ECMO patients, you'll hear us refer to this as the FDO2, the fraction of delivered oxygen, rather than the FiO2, which would be the fraction of inspired oxygen via the ventilator. So when we talk about ECMO, we'll talk about the FDO2. And generally during cannulation and initial transport, you're going to just leave this set at 100%. Um, and in these patients, we're only targeting a goal PaO2 of greater than 55. And so 
you can increase your flows and in, by increasing your speed on your pump to improve your oxygen delivery but always there are implications when you get too many uh, high speed events and you can eventually cause chugging which we'll discuss later and also hemolysis um, which would be another complication we can talk about but then when we talk about CO2 removal, we refer to this as sweep. And sweep gas flow is in gas flows in liters per minute um, through the oxygenator. And uh, a higher sweep will clear more CO2 more rapidly. Generally, our sweeps are 0 to 10 liters per minute, which is on the blender right on the uh, right on the ECMO circuit itself. In situations where you can't clear enough CO2 rapidly, uh, we may go onto the what we call onto the wall, which will get us up to 15 liters of flow for higher sweep to pull more CO2 off. So once the patient is on the circuit, we have our parameters set and we are satisfied with our parameters. What are some common problems that are encountered in patients who are on an ECMO circuit, specifically a VV ECMO circuit, and, and what do we need to look out for both in the transport of these patients and once we're back in the ICU? Yeah, sure. So I'll kick it off. So the short answer is there are a lot of things, especially in the pericannulation setting. So you may be picking up a patient that could have been cannulated for hours to even days sometimes, depending on the institution and your call to take them somewhere else. That's going to be a different patient than kind of the fresh cannulation. And oftentimes it's that fresh cannulation that has the hemodynamic swings and some of the cannula kind of malpositioning that we'll talk about in a second. So the first thing to think about is in the pericannulation setting, this is going to be a pro-inflammatory vasodilatory uh, process for the patient. They're going to have these large cannulas put in. And for these patients, they have to receive an initial heparin bolus. Uh, they are extremely pro-inflammatory. These cannulas will clot off. You'll hear some very specific instances described where there's no heparin given whatsoever, but I can tell you it's standard for our institution at the very least for any cannulation to be heparinized or receive some element of bolus anticoagulation just because of the prothrombotic state of initially introducing the cannulas. So that's number one. You want to make sure that these guys are anticoagulated. You want to make sure they get their bolus about three minutes before the cannulas are placed. Typically, we can check an ACT at that time as well just to make sure that they're adequately anticoagulated. After the cannulas are in place, if you are not the actual cannulator, what you also want to be concerned about is some of the hemodynamic swings. So for the VV ECMO, hopefully what you see is actually a pretty drastic and reasonably quick improvement in their oxygen saturation and PaO2 from just being placed on the ECMO circuit. But these patients can become hypotensive in that pericannulation setting, and you just want to make sure that you have push dose pressors, especially in the VV ECMO setting, so that you can manage those hemodynamics. Usually after the patient is stabilized um, on VV ECMO, assuming they didn't have any other concomitant underlying process that was causing them to be hypotensive, their hemodynamics typically stabilize. And from a vasopressor perspective, they're usually pretty stable to transport. Now, the other thing that you want to make sure is you're getting ready to head out the door is that these cannulas are in appropriate position. So that can be done a multitude of ways, TEE, TTE, depending on the skill set of the operators that you're working with, versus plain film x-ray works very well, versus um, fluoroscopy or some other kind of type of live imaging. And 
the reason, especially when you're doing the IJ fem approach, that you want to make sure these canals are in adequate position is, as you can imagine, as you're coming up from the IVC to the right atrium and coming down from the SVC to the right atrium, those cannulas can become close. And if they are too close, you basically have return oxygenated blood being drawn back into the negative pressure drainage cannula. And then you're getting recirculation. So you're recirculating oxygenated blood through the ECMO circuit, but not through the patient. And in that particular situation, what you'll see is a sky high SVO2 on your uh, ECMO circuit. You won't see any color differential in between your two cannulas. And you won't see any improvement in any of the patient's oxygenation parameters. Also from a cannulation perspective, you wanna make sure that the cannula is far enough in. If the cannula isn't at that right atrial junction, these cannulas can actually become dislodged. And in that particular situation, you have a 20-something French hole in a large vein that can literally fall out of the patient sometimes, and then you'll have issues with hemostatic control given the fact that you've just given them a bolus of heparin. So in that particular situation, if, heaven forbid, you would have a cannula become completely dislodged from the patient, um, there's a couple of initial things you can do. One of them should be you should go ahead and, and clamp the circuit. Every circuit should be transported with many sets of Kelly clamps, and you should go ahead and clamp the circuit, drop the flows on the ECMO uh, circuit itself, and then start just aggressively volume resuscitating these patients. Um, we're flowing oftentimes somewhere in the neighborhood of three to six liters per minute, and so especially if there was an occult loss of cannulation, you can easily lose many liters of volume and blood in a very rapid amount of time. Awesome. So now that we understand some of these complications we need to keep an eye out for and sort of the basics of VV ECMO in the both hospital and pre-hospital environment, I just want to close by getting your insight on uh, how we transport these patients and any special considerations uh, we need to take into account when moving these patients from one hospital to another or in some regions of the world from the pre-hospital setting to the hospital. Transport of the ECMO patient can be fraught with complication risks. So you have large cannulas that are attached to tubing that is attached to a machine, that is attached to a patient that is likely on multiple different infusion pumps, and likely prior to ECMO cannulation was on reasonably high ventilator settings. So when we move these patients, just like we have someone dedicated to an endotracheal tube, we have at least one person dedicated to the cannulas as well. When you are measuring out the tubing if you're doing the cannulation at the bedside, you also want to make sure you give yourself adequate length such that you can safely move these patients. Anyone that's been tethered to a balloon pump and a stretcher knows what it's like when you don't have a lot of room to work. So any movement, someone is dedicated to cannulas and tubing. We have a special rack to secure the cardio help, which is our, trans our particular transport um, device and that can be helpful as well because it's secured for transport, it's secured on the stretcher. And then we just make sure that the cannulas are visible for transport so that we can see any evidence of bleeding around the cannulas, any evidence of dislodgement. 
And whenever you have an issue where you're having low flow alarms, one thing that you absolutely want to be checking is if either your tubing or a cannula has become kinked in the process of moving a patient. So really the, the greatest likelihood of risk in these patients is just in the movement of the patient themselves and dislodging something that wasn't dislodged before. Just to kind of piggyback on what Liz was saying there, the ECMO cannulas we've seen many times get pinched in something as simple as a side rail. Um, so even when, you know, once you've gone from OR table over to stretcher to get back out to the bus, you know, you put those rails up and they get pinched ever so slightly in a side rail and all of a sudden you're losing flows. Um, so whenever we transfer patients from bed to bed, bed to table, stretcher to table, and, and vice versa, um, in addition to seeing your, your long tubing of cannulas, having your ECMO sites exposed and dedicated providers on those sites at all times. A lot of times for a neck cannulation site, whoever's in charge of the endotracheal tube also has a hand over the cannulation site on the, on the right or left IJ there. Um, and then the same for the leg. Uh, whenever we're moving over from table to table or table to bed, making sure that that site is open and exposed for everyone to see during those critical slide transports because that's that's when those cannulas get get pulled on the most and I think the only other thing um, is to know what your ECMO alarms sound like they're a different sound and they're not quite as loud and obnoxious as an IV pump or as some of our ventilators so you know if you're rolling out for a transport ask your perfusionist to turn on the pump and and let you hear what those alarms are some of them are a bit more loud and boisterous but some of them are very subtle um, but can give you a lot of data especially if you didn't have any alarms and now all of a sudden you're getting some persistent low-level alarms it's better to listen to those up front and try to get ahead of that problem before all of a sudden you're losing flow altogether all right so we talked about page and impellas earlier stay tuned for that but also va ecmo Paige and I are actually going to interview Adam about some of his recent transport experience with VA ECMO. So Adam, we look forward to uh, we look forward to asking you questions about the VA ECMO patient and transport of VA ECMO.